0: Good morning. It's so good to be here with all of you this morning. My name is SJ, if we haven't met before. I am one of the pastors down at Faith Presbyterian right by Purdue. But I've been around the Midwest Presbytery since about 2014. I got examined in that room right back there by some committee members. So St. Andrew's always held a special place in my heart because of that. Well, let's dig into our scripture from 2 Peter this morning. I will read for us 2 Peter 1 1 through 2 3. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are ever-increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins." Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 12, therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice, born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do very well to pay attention to, as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, "'For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, "'but men spoke from God "'as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit.'" Chapter 2. "'But false prophets also arose among the people, "'just as there will be false teachers among you "'who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, "'even denying the master who brought them, "'bringing upon themselves swift destructions.'" and many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word to us. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you asking you to open our eyes to the truths of your scripture, draw us closer to yourself, and conform us to the image of your Son, and it's in his sweet name that we pray, amen. What is your favorite genre of music? Raise your hand if you like country couple country fans. Any rock fans in here? All right. Any classic, classical music? Okay, good. Jazz? Any jazz fans? What am I forgetting? I guess top 40s. Oh, and we have to say Christian. We have to have the Christian answer. (laughs) Yep, yep. But I want you to consider why do we love music so much? I think part of what makes music so comforting is that there's always a typical rhythm and pattern. Our beloved hymns use the same tune for four verses, and then many of the newer worship songs add a bridge with some musical time for prayer and reflection. And those patterns are predictable, and that's what makes music, I think, so comforting and so moving. For us. And in the same way that music has typical building blocks and patterns that it follows, the different genres in scripture have their own typical building blocks and patterns that they follow. So when I say genres of scripture, I'm talking about poetry, like Psalm 80 that we read, history, narrative, and letters, like the one we just read, the opening to today. And in 2 Peter, we have the typical aspects of an ancient letter before us. There's a beginning where the author states their name. There's some salutations, right? The intro greeting, some thanksgiving. Some of the other letters take more time to mention people and prayer. And the first character we meet in 2 Peter is our author, Peter, you might remember Peter as one of the 12 disciples, but more than that, Peter was in the core 3. Right? He was in Jesus's inner circle. And throughout the letter, we see some clues about the original context and what was happening. If you flip to the next page in your Bible in 2 Peter 3:1, he says, "Beloved, This is the second letter I'm writing to you. So we have to remember that we're entering into a conversation here, right? There's maybe even been some back and forth with them. And this letter starts with the ancient typical greeting for letters. So ancient letters, I feel like they're kind of more crafted like today's email where like the from is the first Line or maybe the outside of a paper envelope. You see who a letter is from before you even open it. And that's because 2,000 years ago, most people weren't literate. They wouldn't have read this in a binded book like we have now. Someone would have read this letter on a piece of parchment or maybe some leather hide to the community, and it would have been read aloud multiple times times for them to receive this message from the Apostle Peter. And one cool fact to know is that in ancient letters, right after someone said, from this person to this person, the next thing they would do is give glory or honor or praise to whatever local deity there was where they were sending that letter to So they'd say, we have letters that are like praising Dionysus or to whatever Greco-Roman God there was. But Peter gives thanks to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now some of our letters in the Bible or epistles make it really easy for us and they tell us exactly who the audience is. They say, to the people in Galatia, to the people in Corinth, but Second Peter doesn't make it that easy for us. But we can infer as we look at the rest of the letter, you look at chapter 2, you'll see a bunch of names of Old Testament characters. So we can infer that Peter is probably writing this letter to Jewish Christians. So these are eth- probably ethnic Jews who have converted to Christianity because they would have been familiar with those Jewish characters in the past. And we know that part of the history around Peter is that he was executed in 68 A.D. by Emperor Nero. So our best guess is that this letter was written sometimes in, sometime in the 60s A.D. So this is 30 years after Jesus died on the cross. And that amount of time will be important when we come back to this. But... Our best guess is that in the 60s, this letter was circulated around Asia Minor or like modern day Turkey. So now that we've established some of our context, the who, what, where, when, and why, let's dig into this passage and see what we can glean from it and how it's relevant to the church today. And the first thing I wanna point out is how Peter describes the people In this church, right? He calls them brothers and sisters. And in verse one and two, he says they've received the same faith, they have a purification from sins. And in verse five, he lists some qualities for them where he's like, hey, remember these qualities. He mentions diligence, moral excellence, knowledge, self control, perseverance, godliness, and brotherly kindness. And in verse eight, he tells them that if they have these inner qualities, they won't be unproductive in the true knowledge of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, in verse 9, he describes the person that doesn't have these qualities as being blind or short-sighted, having forgotten their former purification from sins. And Peter kind of goes back and forth. He's building a contrast here. And in verse 10, he tells them, Therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choice of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. I think it's notable that Peter tells them to avoid stumbling Through practice, he tells them to be diligent about practicing these qualities. Have you ever witnessed first responders in the heat of the moment? Perhaps you've had to call 911 when someone has passed out, or you've witnessed a house fire I'm always amazed in those moments when these professionals are able to stay so calm and collected when it's chaos going on around them. But how do these folks stay so calm in the midst of an emergency? And the answer is, they practice. Right, firefighters will find an abandoned house and light it on fire and practice all of their procedures and scripts for how they work together as a team and how they secure the scene and keep bystanders safe around them, right? They, they have practice on their procedures and they have scripts. And in the same way, I think Peter is encouraging us to practice these virtues. And he tells us exactly how we are to practice. When we look back at verses three and four, Peter starts out this letter saying, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and it's through the true knowledge of him who called us. And in verse four, he goes on to explain God's promises, and he says, so that you may become partakers of the divine nature. Peter wants these Christians to remember that they have God's divine power that they can be partakers of. And Christians participate in practice these divine qualities as God applies them to us through Jesus Christ. And I think it's interesting in verses 12 and 13 how Peter says, I really want to remind you of these things. Remember these things. So I wonder if it was easy for them to forget them. And Peter really hammers it home. He says, as long as I'm alive, as long as I'm on this earth, I'm going to remind you. And the jolly opening of this letter the tone starts to shift in verses 13 through 14 to a much more serious warning. Peter brings up his death. That's what he means when he says he's going to be passing out of this body. And I think the reason he brings up his death as part of this serious warning is because Peter recognizes the significance of the passing of the apostles, those who were with Jesus 30 years before, and to maintain that authoritative teaching and scripture. We see throughout the book of Acts, as we have detailed with that early church history, that there's a lot of persecution of early Christians. But in the midst of that persecution, Peter is reminding them to hold fast because he was an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. And in the midst of the persecution that the earlier church is facing, they're facing outward forces, but they're also facing internal forces. We find out in verse 16 that there are cleverly devised tales that are assaulting them. But Peter's like, don't listen to those. Listen to the eyewitness." testimony. And Peter is working really hard to build his argument in this letter to remind the people, the recipients, these early Christians that he, him and other apostles, they're eye witnesses of Jesus's divinity. And he gives them an example of exactly what he was an eye witness of. In verse 17, Peter reminds them of the declaration when a voice came down from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Multiple gospel writers record this moment when a voice from heaven is declared over Jesus on a mountaintop. And as you might recall from the Old Testament, God has a thing for revealing himself on mountaintops. What's the first example of God speaking from a mountain that comes to your mind? Moses, yeah, you guys can talk, it's okay. Um, Right? He God is a thing for revealing himself on a mountain. And the Ten Commandments are a big thing that happened on a mountain where God reveals himself to humankind, right? He gives them the gift of the law. This is an amazing revelation. And I think what Peter is doing when he mentions that moment where they hear God's voice on the mountain, he's putting the eyewitness testimony of the apostles and disciples On the same level as the Old Testament scripture, like the Ten Commandments. He wants these early Christians to see that the eyewitness testimony of those who were with Jesus is just as authoritative. And in verse 19, he gives them a really strong command. He says, Pay attention, pay attention to this. And he explains in verse 20 that no prophecy of Scripture becomes a matter of someone's own interpretation. And I think that aside there's he's, he's trying to say that you can't interpret Scripture by itself and pervert its meaning, and that's because God is the one, right? God's breath, God's spirit, his voice is the one that moved people. That's how the Holy Spirit moved the writers and authors of Scripture, So when Peter is saying that the prophecy that they have in scripture came from the Holy Spirit and that he's an eyewitness of the prophecy, he's really emphasizing, hey guys, pay attention to the eyewitnesses that we have on these matters. An eyewitness testimony is crucial in this time, right? They don't have cameras around their campus, right? They don't have recording devices, So the thing that held up in court was when two men were able to say that they saw something. right? This eyewitness testimony is what holds up in a court of law. And Peter works so hard to really hammer this point home about what true prophecy is. It's the eyewitness testimony there that comes from the Holy Spirit. And he does that because in chapter 2, we learn that there are false teachers that this community or communities are up against. Chapter 2 starts with a big conjunction. He says, but, right? But these false teachers... and..." Peter uses some really wicked imagery and examples to denounce these seductive false teachers. He says they secretly introduce destructive heresies. They deny the master. They have indecent behavior. They malign the truth, and they exploit people. And Peter goes on to describe these false teachers saying that their judgment is not long from idle, and that their destruction is not Asleep, and that these teachers are bad people, right? They're preaching a counterfeit gospel, but they also live really bad lives. And we can infer from the rest of the letter when Peter goes on to describe that they're probably denying that Jesus rose again from the dead. And as we dig through this text, we can glean that Peter is working so hard to establish his eyewitness credentials in chapter one to show his authority over these false teachers that the Christians are facing, right? is telling them, I walked with Jesus. I was there on the mountaintop. Believe me, the eyewitness, not these other people that are making later claims, because these Christians are prone to being exploited by false teachers. So I want you to see the big contrast in this section where we have the eyewitness testimony that of Jesus Christ and his prophecy versus the cleverly devised tales and myths of false teachers. Does anyone here work in, like, the banking industry or handle mo- even just, like, handle money every day as a part of their job? Okay, we've got one person. Oh, a couple people here. I want you to imagine a Monopoly $20 bill. We might... Oh, yes, we have the picture of it. Awesome. So when you look at this $20 bill, how do you know that it's not real money? Yes. It does look like Monopoly. Yeah, I think there's a few things that are obvious, right? The US currency usually has someone's face in the middle, right? Oh, well, let's go back to the Monopoly one though. And there's usually like some Latin words on there. And real money has this like glossy shine factor where like if you twirl it a little bit, you can can see these like threads of fabric woven through it. Right and this when it's this different and blatantly obvious it's easy to tell that this is not a real dollar bill. So let's look at our real dollar bill up here. Right you can kind of see like the I think that's an eagle on the left side where it's got that like shiny factor that you can recognize as real money. We've got the face right there's like the database numbers, the seal and all the fa- or all the little intricate parts that make money, our money and our currency, what it is. But for fraud detection experts, how do they train to discern the real money from the fake money? Does anyone here know what their procedures are? Sorry, say it louder. hmm Yeah, they're trained to see there's like a special, there's usually like a line like two-thirds of the way through. This one you can't tell in this picture, right? How else are like fraud detection experts trained to identify counterfeit money? Yeah, they spend hours feeling the real money. They study real money under microscopes and under magnifying glasses And the thing that strikes me about their training to identify counterfeit money is they actually spend the majority of their time only studying the real money. They study real money so that they can learn all about it and study the intricacies and the little things that prove that that is the real currency. That's how they determine what real money is. And I think that we can be inspired by their best practices and in the same way, Christians, the way that we discern what the truth is and the way that we identify counterfeit gospels is by studying the real deal. We spend time pouring over scripture so that we know what it means and we catch all of the nuances of the story of Jesus that's woven throughout this book. That's how we discern the truth. And yeah, we do that through the divine power that has been granted to us, but we have to remember that right action comes from true knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. We love one another. We love the neighbor. And we love the people who are hard to love because Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to die for our sins and he rose again from the dead. And we participate in his divine nature by relying on him, right, and turning to that same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. So what does this practically look like for Christians today? First, I think it means we consider the qualities here that Peter has listed and ask God to help you practice them. I mean, these are really the basics of Christian living. And as I read this list, I want you to consider which one Strikes you the most diligence, moral excellence, knowledge, self control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly affection, love. If you're lacking knowledge of the true gospel, I can't emphasize enough to spend time in the word, right? just like fraud detection experts spend time studying the real deal, the real currency, so that they can identify the counterfeit, so we need to spend time in God's word, pouring over it, so that we know the truth inside and out. But I'm guessing a lot of you have grown up in the church and feel like you have a pretty good knowledge of scripture. So what What other virtues is the Holy Spirit convicting you of? Do you need to have more self control with your temper? Do you need to have more self control with food or your attitude? Do you need to ask God to help you persevere, whatever tough situation that you're in? Or maybe you need help with brotherly kindness and love. I know that in my own life, I think for me, the thing that I struggle with the most in this season is just kindness. When I'm overworked and I'm tired and a preschooler has woken me up in the middle of the night, it's really hard to be kind and to have the self control that God wants me to. But just like those emergency responders, I can rely on God's divine power and start practicing scripts for the hard moments. And most of the time, the best way to start out practicing my faith is taking a deep breath. And pausing and asking God to help me in that moment to give me his divine power and to ask for help and to tell him, Lord, I am so frustrated that my preschooler will not get into his car seat and I'm about to lose it (laughs) right now. Right, God doesn't just give us this list of virtues and say, hey, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and figure it out. No, he wants us to invite him into the moment and say, God, can you help me here? Help me be a good mom. Help me be a good wife. Help me be a good coworker, so that I can reflect Christ. Right? Rely on his divine power. Set up ways to remind yourself of scripture and this divine power. And a big part of that is regular church participation. It's like what you guys are all doing here today but it's also regular scripture study, right? Studying the real deal and remembering that we have an eyewitness testimony here. And that leads me to my second application for today. That in the midst of all of these false prophets that these early Christians are facing Peter goes on in chapter 2, if you want to read the rest of it this week, he goes on in chapter 2 to remind them of previous generations who faced really hard times, but they overcame the false teachers and the persecutions, and that if the previous generations could do it, so can they. And I think it can be so helpful for us when we're in Scripture to read the stories of the Bible, and remember, we tend to idealize things and remember it with rose-colored glasses. I think of King David. He was the king, this awesome king, but he was an adulterer and a murderer. We forget those things, right? But in the midst of that, despite David's unfaithfulness, God is faithful to us, and we have to remember his faithfulness, and we can encourage one another with God's faithfulness when we tell our own stories. I was so encouraged when you all invited me to be at your women's retreat last, or was that earlier this year? feels like forever ago. I think it was like February, January, February, yeah, and just hearing some of the older gals share stories of God's faithfulness in their lives to the younger moms, right? You guys are doing something right here, With that, that's how we remember God's faithfulness and how we identify false prophets As we stay inspired and in the word and we support one another. But at the same time, we still need to be aware of what false prophets we're facing today as a church. So I want you to consider what false teachers... Do you need to be aware of and pay attention to lest you are influenced by them? One of the biggest ones I see in the church today is that parents are facing the ideologies of positive psychology. Many of the parenting resources that are out there are overreacting to the generation Before us, and there's this idea that our kids are whole and good. And the ideas of positive psychology do have some merit. I think, kind of, the cultural trend right now is these kind parenting styles that treat our kids with respect and love, and where we seek understanding and listen. But we can't let the pendulum swing so far from one side to the next, or to the other, and we have to remember that our kids are little sinners, right? When my preschooler acts out and doesn't want to get into his car seat, he doesn't need a mere redirect or positive reinforcement, right? That is his sinful nature with him not wanting to obey mom and dad, and I think the thing that can make some false teaching so sneaky is that the best lies have a lot of truth. The best lies have a lot of truth. So yeah, the ideas of positive psychology and treating our kids with respect and listening to them, there's truth in those philosophies. But we have to see the deceit and that we're failing our kids when we don't fully discipline them and put them back on the right track and help them repent of their sin in that way. And, that, and that's the only way because if we're only redirecting our kids and not firmly setting boundaries, they're never going to understand that they're sinners in need of a savior if we don't help identify that when we set loving boundaries. And as parents, it's our job to reflect God's gracious character to our kids and to, yes, we want to be patient with them, but there are lines that we hold that we don't let be crossed. So consider what other false prophets are we facing in our times Right? I think it's easy for us to think about network television, and there's preachers who are saying that if you love Jesus, you're going to be healthy or you're going to be wealthy. Right? Th- those are easy to identify. But remember that the toughest counterfeit gospels are the ones that maintain half-truths. So consider where you're getting your sources of information from. But more than that, start your days rooted in God's scripture. Study the real deal so that you can identify the counterfeit. So practically, what does that look like for you to be in God's word? Do you literally need to open a Bible on your nightstand and put it on top of your phone so that you see scripture before you look at any screens? Does' it mean signing up in your email account, whether it's work or your personal one, for a daily devotional, so that you get a reminder every day at 7:30 a.m. to read that. What are you going to set up to help you be rooted in Scripture? Friends, we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and rose again from the dead. And it's easy to identify the blatant heresies that reject the big parts of our faith. But we have to be aware of the false teachers that twist half-truths in their teachings. As you go about this week, remember that the hardest lies to spot are the ones that are half-true. But at the same time, be encouraged that you have Christ's divine power living in you through God's Spirit. right? He is in you and he will empower you to live out his truth. He promises that for us. And as he calls us to this holy standard and those virtues, remember you have God's power within you to do that. We aren't the first Christians to face trials and hard times, and we aren't I don't think we'll be the last. But as you go this week, brothers and sisters, ask God for his divine power, right? But participate with him in that by being in his word and inviting him into the moment when you're tempted to not be Christ like so that God can empower you to live out whatever calling he's placed on your life. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.